Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Kassenham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Kristen Smith, president and COO of Furnish. Now, furniture is one of the most wasteful areas of production. The materials needed to produce furniture, the nature of shipping the product, and the life cycle of furniture makes it ripe for disruption. Now, this is where Furnish comes in. Fast Company has said that Furnish is like rent the runway, but for sofas. Now, they are so much more than that, and their impact is expanding every single day. So let's dive into the conversation with Kristen. So what was it like growing up in Detroit? I mean, what was kind of early life like for you? Really just, I think it was really suburban. So, but Detroit has so many things I just took for granted. All the sports teams were there. There's the opera, the ballet, the museums, and just lots of cultural things. And even though Detroit, when I was growing up, was in the bad times, when you go back to the 1950s, it was just this like massive, booming metropolitan city. And even in the earlier days when it was being you know, developed as a city, like the city architect from Paris like laid it out. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's crazy. The train station, which is, you know, Ford bought and is making into a mobility center, that was designed by the same person that did Grand Central in New York. And it's it was just incredible. And the 80s just wiped it out. I mean, because of the, the massive swing in the economics. But we still had all that stuff there. And I just took it for granted. So the first time I moved away, it was like, wait because <laughs> I moved to Austin. Great town, but you don't have any professional sports there that are like major league sports, right? You're mm-hmm. going to the minor league baseball team and the IHL mm-hmm. hockey game. And, you know, like you've got stuff to do and there's, it was great for being outside and music and all that other good stuff. But I just realized how much I took for granted in the Detroit area. So mm. that's so interesting. What brought you to Austin? Job after school. I remember going down, I did a lot of studying of kind of operations and supply chain. And in my sort of capstone project, did a lot of benchmarking of Dell because I got really interested in e-commerce because I was in school in the like mid to late 80s or 90s. I mean, okay, not that old. <laughs> Uh, it's my birthday Friday. I'm very aware of it. Oh my gosh. Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I did this, like this research project and benchmarked a lot about what Dell was doing. And I just got super curious about like, well, how do they do this? It's so different from, you know, the auto industry in terms of raw materials and parts and, you know, all of the sort of overhead that it took to like make a car and, you know, why everybody buys off of the lot instead of ordering to order and, and, you know, Dell had sort of figured out how to make everything to order and control demand a little bit with their website and and e-commerce. And I just was super in awe of how they had sort of brought all these different things together. And and so when I interviewed with them, I was really excited. And then I was like, wait, Austin, I don't really know anything about Austin, but except that it's in Texas, which seems weird, (laughs) (laughs) but it was fantastic. You know, I went down there and I remember like they were they allowed you to bring like a significant other. And I'm like, I don't know, coming out of college, I was just like, friend, will you come down with me? And I, was just like, I think I sort of like this place, but I don't know how to reconcile that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. So what kind of got you interested in the supply chain? I mean, that's such a, I have a huge interest in supply chain more as it relates to sustainability, but I mean, that's, yeah. it's a very like niche focus. What kind of got you interested in supply chain from the beginning? I mean, I fell into it a little bit. When I went to school, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was a musician, but I didn't really think I wanted to be a musician for my job, or maybe I didn't want to practice for my schooling. (laughs) And so I was like, I want to kind of keep that as something that I love. And then I really liked writing and a lot of liberal arts things. I thought about going to law school. So I went to, you know, University of Michigan has a lot of great colleges. So I figured I could move around when I figure out what I want to do. And I applied directly to the engineering school because I figured if I got in there, it would be easier to transfer out than in. And they were just putting together this 
special program that went across the business school and the College of Engineering that was trying to build leadership for manufacturing. MIT had a program, Northwestern had a program, Stanford had a program. These were all kind of out of this U.S. government grant in the 80s that started at MIT and then like MIT had to like propagate it a little bit more. And I wasn't all that interested in manufacturing, to be honest with you, but they approached me because I had a really good first semester. I liked that I was required to take a whole bunch of foreign language and culture types of classes that I was going to be taking a whole bunch of business school classes and you know, being with MBAs a whole lot. And then I also had the engineering. And so I just liked that it was multifaceted. And I took a lean manufacturing class from two guys who were amazing. One of them was the first American that Toyota ever hired to be a manager in one of their plants. And he would walk, uh, it was magical. Like we would go to manufacturing facilities and he would walk the floor and he was so in tune with the people on the floor and just so grateful for them. And what he could see just walking the floor was amazing. And that was all about eliminating waste, right? Mm. That clicked with me. What are all the tools that you can use to like bring these complex systems to their most efficient so that they serve the people who are doing the jobs and the customers who want the stuff? in the best way and take all of the cost, all of the extra garbage out of it. So then I got really excited about lean in general. And I think the one thing that I haven't done a lot of research, but this is my like observation from afar. I think that the way that the Toyota production system works and is applied in Japan is really good at like one particular operation, but I don't think that it, they've done a great job of thinking about that across multiple organizations, like a supply chain. And I just started getting really excited about, okay, there's this process that you're doing to build your products, but like what goes into that? Because that can really affect the downstream there. And then how are you getting that to your customer? And so I think somehow I developed this excitement about the entire system and how it all went together. And so it kind of naturally led to supply chain and I've never been somebody who really wanted to focus on like one particular thing, which is why I think I never really resonated with the job in the auto industry, even though it's really, really cool. It's like you start with like, I'm going to just think about how we're going to get this one component for the back, right, brake caliper, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really, really focused. And I was like, how do things come together? You know, and I'd like to think about systems and that sort of thing. So my brain just wants cross-functional and lots of different inputs, like the creativity piece, the technical piece, the people piece, the, you know, what's the technology and like underlying power of information that sort of can power that or make it better. And I think that's how everything came together. God, that is so cool. Like just, just thinking about that process. I mean, when you got into lean manufacturing, that would, now everybody talks about like lean, agile, and you know, those are just like buzzwords going on right now. But I mean, you were kind of spearheading it when it was, you know, truly in its innovative stage. What was kind of the bigger challenges that you guys had to overcome, like in that process? Like when you think about things as a system, what are generally like the big hurdles that happen in manufacturing? I know it's different depending on what product you're actually making and creating, but what are generally the big hurdles that everybody hits? Well, I mean, this will be a little bit academic because the lean manufacturing class is my favorite, favorite class that I took in undergrad. And then I took some entrepreneurship classes, which, you know, went back there somewhere and rattled around for <laughs> a little while before they came uh, out again. But when I went back to grad school, I took a system dynamics class and anybody who's taken like electrical engineering, they think about basically what these system dynamics are all the time. But Applied to like a business situation, basically what you're doing is mapping out like what are all the things that impact other things? And then where are the feedback loops and how do they create unexpected, unintentional consequences? (laughs) Unintended consequences is still a little early here, but thinking about the feedback loop. So the one that was really like early in that class was just why is there never the right amount of housing, right? And it's sort of like, Mm -hmm. if you think about the situation for people 
who would be buying the real estate and making the call to start or constructing new apartments, for instance, Mm -hmm. that's going to be more likely to happen when there's already a boom. And so if Mm -hmm. everybody's doing that at the same time, and by the time those get completed, there's sort of a glut of capacity that kind of comes on and then everything slows down. And so everybody sort of backs off, right? When really you should be doing the opposite because these cycles go back and forth. And so it's just like this delay of like, it takes, there's a delay in the process of creating, you know, building the apartments and getting those ready. And then, you know, there's a a sort of delay and when they come online and, and everybody's sort of taking the same signals at once and having the same delays. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it just sort of goes crazy. Now, I don't know if we're going to ever catch up to (laughs) where we need to be now, but I do think that the thing going back to your question, I think the one thing I would say is very, very true about manufacturing or supply chains even wider is that there are so many things that have delays in the supply chain. So whether it's getting raw materials or the cost of raw materials or what's driving those costs, of the raw materials or capacity for shipping things, there's just this sort of like delay in the system and it sort of whiplashes when it hits you. And we really saw that with containers, for instance. So you had Asia sort of shut down and that sort of natural flow of containers that was going back and forth caused the containers to sort of get, you know, just out of sequence. They weren't in the right places anymore. There wasn't enough manufacturing going on to get those full and back to wherever, you know, they were going to deliver things. And then all of a sudden there was this pent up demand because we didn't have the manufacturing capacity to service people for a while. Mm-hmm. So you had this sort of, you know, elephant coming through the boa constrictor, a la Le Petit Prince. And you had this, so you had to make up for that, but everybody was scrambling because capacity was still tough. And then demand spiked. So it's like this layering effect. And I think that that sort of whiplash that tends to happen is where you really get into the tough pieces of manufacturing or supply chain or anything. And in particular, you know, building something takes time. And the more complex that is, the more things that you have to have on hand and skilled labor that you have to have ready when you need it to sort of all come together. I remember the first time I went through an auto plant, there's this point where it comes off the line and they like start the car for the first time. And we'd been walking the line, walking the line. You see each person doing all these different things. The fact that any one of those cars started was like a miracle to me. Because there, it just seemed like, the, gosh, there's so many things that have to come together. And I think that that's, that's like very true with manufacturing is that there's so many things that need to come together, your equipment, your raw materials, your labor, the skills, the design, you know, you've got to be able to get it out and get it to your customers. You've got to have the demand. And it's just so hard to react really quickly because those things are not like flip a switch and all of a sudden it's done. I mean, not that software is really easy, but you can make a change and it's instantly out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, I mean, from your perspective, do you live a lot of your day-to-day and kind of, I don't want to say futures, but I mean, observing like what can happen or kind of playing out what the possibilities are? Because I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, to know what's going to happen. But I mean, you don't want to be caught in a position where you know, your supply chain's not ready. So, I mean, do you kind of spend a lot of that time looking at the market as a whole and what the world's doing and then kind of going inwards and looking at your own supply chain? Yeah, I mean, probably we should be doing that because we're a startup and I've been in startups for a while. A lot of times I'm looking like inward out, like we still have Mm -hmm. to build everything from a process, a culture, you know, a career path for our people. Like there's everything that we have to build. And I think that we, there's a little bit of like, Hey, there are some table stakes that are going to take us some time to actually get there. And you're trying to figure out what might be going on. But I think the way that I personally stay sane at a startup where so many moving pieces, there's so much to build. There's so much uncertainty is to sort of take one thing at a time and really focus on what are the things I can control 
So for instance, when I think back to, you know, March, 2020 and our supply chain being a startup, we just don't have a lot of extra capital lying around. So we've always been sort of a just in time supply chain, very reactive to demand. And the great thing about what happened in that time period was we just had a different conversation on the same timeline that we would have a conversation with each of our great vendor partners. Like, all right, tell us what's going on. We haven't really had to get up in, you know, all the way up your supply chain to understand this, but tell me more about where these things are, how you're reading this. Let's make sure that we continue our frequent conversations. And we already had these partnerships built out so that we could have those conversations. And I mean, for us, it feels like craziness to manage a couple dozen vendors, but that's not so many, right? So (laughs) it's totally doable for us to maintain that relationship. And we tried to understand like, what were the degrees of freedom that we had? You know, we don't have the same degrees of freedom really as an e-commerce, pure e-commerce play, because what happens there is it's like, well, anything that I have, I can put on my site and, and people will buy it. But for us, consistency of our product as well as having the right product in our mix. It has to be durable, has to be modular, has to be refurbable, refurbishable. We (laughs) shorten that, but we have to be able to, you know, reuse the product. And so buying a whole bunch of new different things is really detrimental to our sort of longer term ability to use those things. And so we try to keep our product assortment relatively consistent. So if we add something, we want to know we're adding it for the longer term because we want to be able to offer it through multiple customer life cycles. Mm-hmm. So we really had to work with our vendors to say, you know, hey, look, we are really only fo- focused on or interested in this subset of product. If we end up in a situation where this potential, this product is not going to be available for us, Let's start talking about what else is out there. Let's start thinking about getting samples of those things to evaluate them for the durability and refurbability and that sort of thing. It's great because the vendors that we work with, they get us. They know what our business model is. And that's why there are vendors. It's really fun to go to like furniture market and you get lots and lots of attention from different furniture vendors, but you can just tell by like what they're showing you, whether or not they get it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so our partners really get it. And that's great. So they gave us like some opportunity to figure out what our degrees of, of freedom were. And the other lucky thing is we had already started thinking about, you know, how might we design something for circularity and Mm -hmm. how could we potentially start manufacturing our own lines? And it seemed really premature to be honest with you, but we had the opportunity to do two different sofa lines with great partners, one through Crate and Barrel and some manufacturing, a manufacturing partner company that they invested in and is just, I mean, an amazing, amazing company on every level in North Carolina. And then we worked with another partner for designing a more modular sofa that, you know, we could use the same kind of core parts and swap out arms and legs and configurations to make different things that we could offer to customers without having to have inventory of each of those different full sets. sets, Yeah. And then, you know, if something, if a cushion gets ripped because somebody's dog gets into it, we just replace that one cushion, right? We don't have Mm -hmm. to, we don't have to buy an entirely new, couch. So, and I didn't say couch because we say so fun. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to buy a whole new sofa, right? So I think that was really helpful too, is that didn't provide a ton of additional product for us, but it allowed us to kind of think ahead, like what are the things that we could control and what are the things that, you know, we want to learn about now? And it was just great timing. So that was a really long answer, I think, but going back to your question of about like, you know, what are the challenges or or how do you sort of manage all of that? It, in a startup, really, it's easy to be overwhelmed by all the things mm-hmm. that you don't have and you can't do and mm-hmm. that you don't control because there are lots of them. And I think what keeps me sane is what do we control? What can we foresee? What are the sort of like 
almost table stakes, non-negotiables that, you know, we need to be building and let's really focus on doing those things and figuring out what we want to go learn more about so that we can build future capacity or future capabilities or whatever. Yeah, I love that. I think that's part of the advantage, I think, of being a startup is that you can pivot a little bit quicker than a bigger company. I mean, you don't have those full supply chains and all of those, that infrastructure built up. So you're able to kind of make those decisions. But, you know, when it's a pinch, you have to get a little scrappy. And I think that's also kind of the fun part about being in a startup is that you kind of have to be go with the flow and and kind of think on your feet, which kind of makes it, you know, more exciting day to day, I'd say. So tell me a little bit more just about Furnish in general. What's Furnish all about? How did you get involved? I mean, where's your, you know, favorite part of the process? Yeah, well, I'll just start because it answers a bunch of those things with our mission. So our mission is to make it effortless to create your home. And the two things in that statement that I go to are home and effortless. So home is more than a space. It's more than the things in that space. Home is a feeling. It is a sense of, you know, whatever home means to you or whatever you want from it. It could be safety. It could be pride, joy, comfort, all of these things that I think are very human and very sweet. (laughs) And so I just love that part about it. And the effortless part is really around a couple of things. So we focused on furniture first because it is a big pain point. Buying it is expensive. Moving it around is difficult. After time passes, it may or may not serve you because your life may have changed, your space may have changed, but you feel very tied to it because it was expensive and because it's such a pain to sort of deal with it. So we started there because it was an opportunity for us to like focus in on this really, really big pain point and just knock down every point of friction. So make it really easy to choose what you want, make the stuff really great, and then do all of the service for you. So quick delivery into your room of choice, right where you want it, move it around, do all of the assembly for you, take all of the sort of wrapping away. And then when you're done with it, give you tons of options for what you want to do. Do you want to apply those payments that you've made toward buying it out? Do you want us to move you as long as you're within our markets? Do you want us to just pick it up? Do you want to swap something out? So we really wanted to make it super easy to create this home that serves you today, tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, and not have all of the friction that the sort of traditional purchasing model puts into the mix, really. So that's what furnishes. We rent furniture and decor, and we give customers tons of options for and flexibility for what how they want to use that. And it, it's really great for people whose lives are changing a lot or they're just not sure. But, you know, so lots of young professionals who are moving every nine to 12 months, <laughs> they love us. But I think that the market is so much further than that. People, I mean, right now I'm actually living in a temporary space because I'm replacing all the floors and doing a whole bunch of work in my condo and all of the furniture here is furnished. So I'm able to just sort of like, okay, I need a couple months here and this is great. I can still have a really comfortable, great place to live while I'm sort of temporarily displaced. The other thing that happened obviously with the pandemic, all of a sudden we were working from home And we were at home all the time. And so that sofa that I loved was great when it was a sofa after work for a place to relax. But when it becomes like where you eat and where you work and where you relax, (laughs) it's a little much, right? So we saw people starting to build out home offices, upgrading their sofas, adding a dining table, really thinking about how to make their bedrooms more comfy and functional for themselves. And our model is so great because nobody knew what was going to happen or how long this was going to last. So it just provides lots of options and availability because as the supply chain got stretched more and more, it was harder and harder to get furniture. I think we just sort of fit in really, really well. And there's lots of different times and places where we fit in. So when I go back to my place, I had this sort of built-in desk setup that was in my office. And I just decided to have them rip that all out 
while you're there. And I'm renting my whole home office from Furnished and I'm super excited about it because I'm like, I don't really know what I need in there because I've been living with this other thing. So I'll just sort of test this out and see how it goes. So I think that we apply to, we're great for young professionals who are moving around a lot and they have a roommate, they don't have a roommate, they have a different roommate who has different stuff. And, you know, we can fill that in with, you know, one piece, an entire room, an entire apartment, whatever you sort of need. But there's a lot of other things that I think are really great that we can sort of fit in, whether it's very temporal, like, all right, I've got somebody coming to stay with me for the holidays, or I don't usually need a big dining table, but I don't know how I'm going to host Thanksgiving without having a place for people to eat. So I think we have these sort of life events that also happen that are very acute, but you know, life does change. And I think we're there to really help out. So that's what Furnish is, very extended version. The way that I got involved with Furnish was that I was very good friends with Lucas, who was one of the co-founders who then introduced me to Michael, his other co-founder and our CEO. And Lucas and I go way back to Amazon days where I just noticed how great of a product manager he was. And I was building out a product management team and we were going to go tackle digital music for Amazon. (laughs) And, you know, he, I convinced him to come join the team and we built out, you know, what's now Amazon digital music and such a great project and a really small, but mighty team that came together to do that and and figure out, you know, everything from scratch. It's just fantastic. But we became really good friends. And after he left and I left Amazon, we went to different startups and we were really in touch and stayed really good friends. And so if you fast forward about a decade, he said, look, I'm thinking about starting this company. Is it okay if we like kind of present it to you and you tell us what you think? And they, it wasn't just me, there were other people too, but (laughs) they had this sort of Amazon style press release and FAQ that we would use when we were thinking about new things at Amazon. And I just got so excited about having this service available to customers. Furniture rental has been around for a while, but it's clunky, not inspiring, not consumer friendly furniture or service. And just like, oh yeah, duh, this is how we're living these days. Like I don't buy books or buy music or buy movies or anything like that. I just kind of rent it. And same thing with cars and your closet. And this is how we're doing it. I just thought it was such a great idea. And I got really excited about it as a service that should exist. And then I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be a really fun business to build because it is complicated. You've got to have a lot of things that come together and it will be tough, but doable. And if you figure it out, you're going to have this great business. That's not going to be easy to replicate by other people. Mm -hmm. So I got really excited about it. They did a really a small friends and family round to sort of get off the ground, which I participated in as an investor. And then I was an advisor for about a year and a half. And then as I was thinking about what my next thing was going to be, kind of doing a round of funding at my last startup, I really started thinking about, you know, what's next. And Furnish was just always there but I didn't know if it was the right time to join. And it turned out, you know, there was a lot of good product market fit. There was a lot of thought about how do we scale this thing? Michael and Lucas really wanted to bring in somebody who could be another partner in terms of thinking about this and figuring out how to do it. And it just worked out super well. So that was about two and a half years ago. And it's hard to believe it's only two and a half years ago. And it has already been two and a half years, I guess, but it's been really like such a fun ride. So that's what Furnish is, what really excites me about it and how I got involved. <laughs> that's an amazing story. I mean, that what's interesting to me about that process is that, you know, when you work with people early in your career or middle of your career, whatever that is, you don't know where those paths are going to cross ever again. But, you know, you always remember that really good experience you had. And it just, I've always believed that it all comes back to people. Like if you're surrounded by good people and you work with good people and you're working on good ideas, that's when great things happen. And it's cool to just see the growth of Furnish. I mean, I haven't heard about you guys for very long, but I mean, it really is an incredible business model. And yeah, furniture rental is, isn't new, but you guys are definitely innovating in the space because it kind of needs that. And the more interesting part for me is 
you know, in first glance and first thought, you think, oh, furniture rental, man, that must be like kind of wasteful, you know, because you're you're just going through furniture like crazy and you want people to have the latest and greatest. So you must be just ripping through furniture. And that's where I think furnish is a little bit different. And what I'm curious to hear about is, you know, with your background of thinking how to eliminate waste specifically on the supply chain, where did that come into furnish? Yeah. I mean, it was part of the thought from the very beginning because for, you know, that time in your life where you are very mobile and you're buying furniture, whether it's secondhand or you're going to Ikea or, you know, inheriting something, you start to understand how wasteful it is because even if you're donating things, eventually you realize it's sort of wishful donating. You're not sure if that's not just going straight in the trash. And there's almost 10 million tons of furniture that goes into U.S. landfills every single year. And it's because the right person doesn't have it at the right time in their lives, that it's not the right furniture. So it's just in the wrong place. So if you can sort of think about, okay, how do I choose the right furniture that's going to live up to being delivered and assembled and brought back and cleaned and and sort of refurbished and like we can do that three, four, five, six, 12 times, then you start to understand like, okay, let's get the right furniture. Let's kind of curate for that. Let's make sure that we have really great processes for delivery, pickup, cleaning, and then refurbishment. And then let's just make sure that we have the right furniture for you for as long as you need it. And we can give it to somebody else when they need it. And so I think that's always been sort of in the the like initial DNA of Michael and Lucas when they were starting it, especially Michael, because he had been in New York and he'd done a lot of tough moves where, you know, it's like, I I don't know where to put this thing. I literally feel like I have to leave it on the side of the street or something. And, you know, so I think for him, he just really recognized there's so much waste in this and it's not because this furniture isn't good. It's just not good for me right now. And so I think that's been part of, how we built the company. And there's a lot of people or there are a lot of companies that sort of bristle when they think about like reverse logistics. And what I've learned in the last, like in Furnish and my last startup is if reverse logistics is just part of what you do, it's part of logistics. You think of it as another stop. You think of it as another part of your process. You don't just stop your thinking of okay, I shipped it. It's all good. It's out of my hair. I don't have to think about it again. If you're really thinking about the process that goes beyond that and you build that in from the beginning, it's really not a pain. It's just what you do. So that's how it's been for us since the beginning. In fact, we want that furniture back. It really helps us financially. If we can get that back, we can get it back to like new condition and we can find another customer who really wants it. Well, and I think that's an important thing to focus on too, is is the idea of that economies are now starting to look circular rather than just one direction. And, you know, getting that back, that makes it a circular economy. And that's going to be better in the long term for the customers, for the business, for the supply chain. I mean, literally every step of the process. And I think that's a part that's oftentimes missed. It really is just like, I want that new thing here. Let's get it here. Cool. We're done. But yeah, thinking a little bit more circular. So what did you kind of do when it was kind of like, okay, now it's time to start thinking about how do we do the supply chain? How do we scale this company? I mean, what does that look like from a supply chain perspective? Just because I'm fascinated by this. Like, I just think it's so interesting of like, how do you make furniture circular? Yeah, I start with make sure you have the right product in your mix. And we haven't been 100% correct, but we not me, but Michael and Lucas did a lot of research and talking to different companies. In fact, we have on our cap table from early days, the largest furniture rental company in Australia. So they were an investor and they were an advisor of ours. And so we were like, what should we just know about durability of product? And they gave us some specs that we were just armed with. Like, we don't know what we're talking about, but we could sound like we know what we're talking about. (laughs) We're looking for things that have this foam density and are this type of construction and these materials. And it gave us a really good way to get out of the gates. And we learned that that wasn't enough for us over time. And so like early days, we did have some things that were in our mix that 
weren't all that great from like, maybe they held up for one or two customers, but after that, it was like, we really shouldn't be sending this back out. So we have to come up with a different disposition for that. And we took those things out of our catalog. So there's been some trial and error, but, you know, it starts by choosing the right product and then figuring out, okay, how do we then source that product? Not just from the perspective of getting new units in, but supporting that over that circular life cycle. So how do I get parts or repair materials? How can I understand from the manufacturer what paint color this is so I can perfectly match it if I have to do some touch-ups? So there's that sort of like get the right product, then source it really well so that you can support it over this long life. And then I think from there, it starts to narrow down the partners that you work with in your supply chain. I think the toughest part, there's so many tough parts, so maybe this is the (laughs) toughest, but off the top of my head is the uncertainty, right? Because like we were talking about before in manufacturing and supply chain, it's really hard to just flip a switch and see the results that you want because there's so many things that lead to that result. We don't know what our demand is going to be in six months or a year. And if we somehow had that crystal ball, and we could do that, it would give us so much more ability to prepare our vendors and work with them super strategically so that, you know, everybody supports one another and we could be a lot more on the ball for six months out or 12 months out. When we do our forecast, it's sort of like, we think we can kind of know what next week is going to be and maybe the next month. But as we get out to that six months or 12 months, like the error bars start diverging from one another. It's like, it could be here. It could be here. So hard to know. And I think that that is a a big challenge for us because we're growing and you're like, wow, are we going to grow like a super lot or a super duper crazy lot? (laughs) And (laughs) we just like, uh, you have to plan for something, you know, it's always like, well, we should plan for more. I'm like, give me some kind of number because infinity or question mark isn't helpful in mm-hmm. any kind of spreadsheet model. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I mean, that when you guys are actually going through the scaling process, I mean, I think one of the harder parts too is that, you know, since you aren't making your own furniture, I know you kind of hinted to, you know, exploring that possibility, but you're relying on partners who have their own supply chain and their own issues that they have to deal with as well. How does that affect your business when you're trying to kind of be there for your customers in the best way possible? Yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's what can we control? What are the things that we can do to set them up for success? How do we have really open and transparent conversations? And, you know, all of those things coming together about choosing the right partners and, you know, in terms of how do they manage their supply chain? How clear are they about the things that they control and don't control? How mm-hmm. transparent will they be with you? How collaborative can they be when you're running into a problem and help you sort of solve that and identify the opportunities? And I think about, you know, the vendor conversations that I get to to join and and they're super energizing, right? It's like, yeah, we're having these challenges and this is really delayed And the whole thing is not like, oh, gosh, you know, we're so unhappy. It's like, how do we help? What are the things that we can do together? How do we get better at this in the future? You know, what can we do? What are your ideas for how we could, you know, bridge the gap? It's they're really energizing, collaborative conversations. And so I think if you the key to a successful supply chain is visibility, transparency and communication. I love that you hit on transparency. I think that that is like single-handedly the biggest thing is the transparency side of things. Because I think for so long, I mean, this even on all the way down to the consumer, you know, there's not a lot of transparency around where your stuff comes from. You know, I think, especially in the sustainability industry, you know, something can, a company goes, hey, this is sustainably sourced. Is it, or is it a percentage? Is it, what's the labor look like? I mean, there's just such a bigger picture. And I think that transparency is kind of a huge thing. And I, I noticed that Furnish is really transparent about, you know, how many tons you guys save from landfill. I mean, where did that come from in the company? Was that originally in the DNA? Is it something that where you guys are like, look, because this is in our DNA, we need to start sharing it. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's you nailed it. It is because it's just always been in our DNA. And I think 
what I didn't talk about when I talked about joining the company, because there's so many great things about the company. I talked about Michael and Lucas, but every single person that I got to meet while I was sort of evaluating what I was going to do next with my career at Furnish, they are amazing people. And the thing that I would say almost to a person motivates them is the sustainability and the customer experience, right? And the fact that like sustainability, customer experience, cost, all of those things come together and they're like all pushing in the same direction and our business model is unique. It's not like you're making a sustainability or service or price to trade off. So that's awesome. And it's such a a motivation for everybody in the company. So, you know, we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard. And even last night, as I was talking with part of the team, and I was talking about talking to you today, I was just like, gosh, we're such at the beginning of our journey. Like we have so much to do. Like in my head, we're already really deep into our supply chain, not just understanding, you know, the next rung up where the materials are sourced and how they're sourced and the labor practices. And I mean, there's so much more for us to do. So I know that and we all know that I'm like, I'm all about like thinking already, like how are we going to transition to an electric delivery fleet? Like what are the things that we can do in our warehouses to just reduce the energy usage and like make sure that we're using all reusable moving materials and things like that. Like it's all there and we're really in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I will just say that we have a, a really, we have a long path and it will not be like, oh, we got to the end and we're there because it will be constantly raising the bar, constantly looking for opportunities to do more and better. So I will just acknowledge we've got so much more to do, but it's always been in our DNA. And we, especially in the earlier days of the company, everybody would get a copy of High Output Management by Andy, I'm going to say Andy Reid, but again, I'm like tired. The (laughs) guy who used to run Intel, And I usually have it on my desk, which is why I'm here, but I'm in the temporary (laughs) place. Anyway, high output management is, you know, kind of an old school business book, but a lot of it is about, you know, measuring the things that you really care about. And it's not Mm -hmm. rocket science, but if you don't measure something, then you're never going to get better at it because you don't know where you stand. It's really hard for you to understand the different drivers like the inputs to that output. And because it is in our DNA, we really wanted to start measuring it now, even though we know we're early on and there's so much more for us to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is where it comes from is, you know, us really caring about that and making sure that we are taking a look at that and holding ourselves accountable to progress and transparency. I, I think that's huge. And from a business perspective, I mean, nobody's perfect. There's a, as you know, from on a supply chain side, there's a cost benefit to every single decision that you make. And no part of the process is technically going to be perfectly sustainable. Like you're going to have a cost of somewhere along the way. And it's how do you do the best that you can? And how do you communicate that? Hey, look, we're not perfect, but we're trying here. And I think from the consumer side, I think it's coming around to where people are like, okay, cool you're on the right path. You're trying like that means more than just like, we're faking it till we make it or, you know what, we're not going to be perfect. So why even try? Like, I think that's, that's part of that narrative that you guys are walking is like, we're just going to do our best. We got some big goals and we're going to get there. And it is always a moving target. I mean, material science right now is going bananas. It's crazy. Like the, the inventions and innovation in just packing material in actual clothing in just every single material space is getting wild and becoming more circular there. And that's just one piece of the supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we started off ahead of other companies that are starting from zero or even starting in, you know, someplace in their growth because our model is circular and there's sort of that sustainability built in. And so that's great. And that is very motivating. Like, all right, (laughs) we're doing some things. And it's not, I mean, the supply chain over the last two years has not made it easy to sort of dictate anything when it comes to, you know, materials availability and labor availability and transportation availability. And 
those things, I think, you know, we're looking for those opportunities. And at the end of the day, we also have to figure out how to get things to our customers. But I think because it's always right there in our like peripheral vision, at least, like that's always guiding those micro decisions that we're making. And, you know, we're able to ask that extra question. What if, is there this option? Is there something else we could do? Like, what are we not looking at? And it opens up more doors so that we can make those decisions that might be a little bit more on the path that we're trying to to sort of make progress on. Definitely. And I think a lot of people forget too, that like financially as a startup, making sustainable decisions is usually never the cheapest or the best for the bottom line, if you will. It's, you almost need that extra bottom line of, you know, what are you doing for you know the planet at the same time? But you have to make those decisions along the way of like, okay, we have to keep lights on, but we want to do the best we can. It's a process. And yes, we're going to get there eventually, but it's not just a immediate decision because it will literally sink the business. You're spot on and you never you never have the resources or the cash that you want to have in order to, or the time to sort of build out the things that you want to as a startup. But I would say, you know, being in startups, it's easy for us to talk about that, even in a big company that has more established roots or processes or whatever, you never feel like you have enough either. So it's, we're not unique really in that realm. I do think it does go back a little bit to what I was saying like early on about my getting into the supply chain and lean. If you're constantly looking for where do we have waste in the process, Mm -hmm. a lot of times that will lead you to cost reductions and waste from a material or sustainability perspective too. So Mm -hmm. again, there's a lot of win-win-win situations if you just sort of approach it like, hey, this this is not a zero-sum game. Let's really just start with what's best for the customer, what's best for the environment, what's best for our employees, what's best for, you know, our business and see if there aren't some overlaps there that are sort of no brainers and don't cost us time, don't cost us money, just cost us the planning or the forethought or the the sort of process discipline. Yeah, definitely. And so what do you think is the future of kind of maybe the furniture side of, of sustainability, but also just where do you see the future going for Furnish? Gosh, I mean, there's so many aspects to the future of Furnish. We'd love to offer more services, more products. And I think we're really being guided by what our customers are telling us and, you know, just testing the things that we think that we're hearing to see, like, does this fit? Can we do it? Can we execute and deliver on that? Um, And does it make sense? So I think that there are a lot of things that are going to evolve over time for Furnish and what we can offer to customers. And we want to continue to sort of raise the bar in terms of service, in terms of speed, how quickly we can get things to you, how quickly we can react if you want us to pick things up or you want to swap something out. But I think that, you know, over time, as our processes mature, as we sort of have more of the foundational pieces built out we're going to be able to do some of those things on the sustainability front that we just haven't had the bandwidth or the stable foundation to build on in order to do that. So, you know, being even more intentional about what the products are and how they're made and what they're made from, and not just so that those products are made sustainably, but also so that they can live for longer and longer in the the circular model that we have. There's so much for us to do there for sure. But I'm excited about, again, like all of the things that we'll be able to do for customers that we can't do today in terms of speed and service and and flexibility. That's really, really exciting. Do you remember your first consciously sustainable purchase you ever made? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I feel like I'm always trying to make that choice now, but when did it become conscious? Like this probably isn't even all that sustainable, but growing up in Michigan, you never saw cans or bottles on the side of the road because you got 10 cents back if you picked that up and took it into Mm. a store so that it could be recycled. And that was just, I mean, in college, you paid for meals that way. I mean, it was, (laughs) I think that is what I really think back to is in my childhood that that was just 
this was not something you threw away. It had value. It had to get back to where it was going to be recycled and reused again. And that's kind of where my brain is going is just like, you know, you get that soda, you, you know, it's, it goes back. You're responsible for returning that container when you're done with it. I love that. I think that totally counts. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. I love that. And then where's your favorite place to enjoy nature? Oh gosh. You know, I think that that summer in Boulder that I mentioned really started that grounding and like conscious awareness of the ability to go sit on a mountain and look out over nature or over a lake, or just to hear the breeze and nature, you know, birds or, you know, whatever it is. And that sort of, you know, I was in college when this happened, right? So I'm questioning everything. Is there a God? I don't know. But I'm like, that's where I felt like, you know, the first time I was like, if there is, this is somehow connecting to that spirit. So I think that Boulder, I really credit for sort of opening my eyes, but luckily my condo is actually on a lake and I get to sort of like wake up every day, look out over the lake. It changes all the time. The light changes, the ducks that are there sort of like change throughout the year. There are eagles and spray and all kinds of things out there. And I mean, I'm so fortunate to be able to just look out the window and feel that like connection to nature. So now that's my favorite place, but I credit Boulder for, for sort of pushing me on that path. <laughs> that's beautiful. That, that sounds amazing. Like it's so cool to be able to be immersed in nature wherever you are and just kind of take a moment and just pause and be like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. It's really, yeah. really cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to just talk on the podcast, talk everything, furnish your supply chain background, boulder nature. I mean, all of it. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm so excited for the future of Furnish. How can people kind of look up Furnish and get involved and order it? I mean, where are you guys located? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me just say thank you for having me. It's been super fun to chat with you and to just sort of explore all these topics. So thank you for your time and for having me. Furnish, we're online. We are spelled F-E-R-N-I-S-H. So if you're looking for our URL, it's furnish.com, but we're with an E. Our early logo was a fern. So, you know, connection to that sort of nature. As far as our service today, we service Southern California. So the LA area, Orange County, San Diego, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Austin area, Seattle area, and a few more coming soon. Oh, that's so exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. Check out Furnish on their site, social media, and see if you're in a city where Furnish is operating. Their service and product is incredible, and they're making such a big impact. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support goes a long way, and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.